what's up everybody welcome to another episode of on the mix i'm your host Lindsay, and today i thought i would kind of continue my impromptu series of awesome female musicians by talking about the one and only joan jett i'll be honest i haven't always been a big fan of joan jett and her music um because i kind of thought well it's a bit cheesy isn't it like her cover of I Love Rock and Roll. I mean, I was like, hey, you know, I'm just not really a massive fan. I grew to like her song Bad Reputation mostly because it's the theme song from one of my favorite series of all time, Freaks and Geeks. I love that show. And I think it was perfect that they happened to use Bad Reputation as the theme song. And I was like, yeah, you know what? This makes perfect sense to me. So that's kind of my thought, you know, on Joan Jett. I mean, I never really knew a whole lot about her. I, I knew, of course, that she was in The Runaways before she had her own solo career. But aside from like the one or two songs that I knew that she did and the Cherry Bomb song from The Runaways, I just knew barely anything about her and her story and what she did in her life. Zero idea. But I kind of came around to her because as I was looking into her story as I was researching this podcast, I was like, whoa. She has done a lot and she has stood up for herself since day one of the whole game in the music industry. I mean, if you could only hear some of the stories that have gone on within The Runaways and with her own solo career, it's crazy. And she persevered and she, in my opinion, is one of the strongest female vocalists of all time, at least one of. Um, So I thought, you know what, let's do a dedicated episode to her and let me tell you guys the story of Joan Jett and how she came into the music industry, the crazy things that happened when she was in The Runaways, and then how she tried to come out with her solo album, but she was rejected by 23 record labels. Yes, that's right. Without further ado, let me tell you the story of Miss Joan Jett. She was actually born Joan Larkin, and she was born on September 22nd, 1958 in Winewood, Pennsylvania. She's the oldest of three children, and her family was Protestant. They attended church, and they went to Sunday school. Can you imagine a little Joan Jett in church? She must have been like, please get me out of here. I don't want to be in church. I was the same. Absolutely could not stand to be in church. I would rather be doing anything else when I was a kid. Church was not what I wanted to do. Um, But, you know, her parents had, you know, these strict religious beliefs, and so she was kind of forced to go to church. In 1968, her family then moved from Pennsylvania to Maryland in Rockville. She asked her parents for a guitar, and they bought her one at the age of 13. And so she took some guitar lessons from this teacher, and it turns out that he was quite the sexist. Listen, this will be kind of a running theme in the whole story, okay? Um, But he was like, "Uh uh-uh, you are not going to plug your guitar into an amplifier and play Chuck Berry. Who do you think you are? You're a woman, and women should not play these kind of instruments. Women should not play rock music. And she was like, all right, screw you then. I'm going to go do my own thing. Um, So she quickly left these guitar lessons, and she taught herself how to play. After some time, her family then moved over to the West Coast. They moved to West Covina in California, and shortly after the move, her parents ended up divorcing. So as you can imagine, this was very difficult for her. She was only in her early teen years, and moving around already across the country is already stressful enough having to be like the new kid in school and being a bit different anyway. So 
Joan would kind of end up taking these frustrations out on changing her look and her appearance. Notably, obviously, she adopted that kind of like shaggy mullet, um, the black haircut, and she was wearing dark, thick eyeliner, and then she adopted a leather jacket. So this is kind of where the Joan Jet that we all know and love was born here in California when she ended up moving. And it was also here that she gave herself the new identity of Joan Jett instead of Joan Larkin because she thought that Joan Jett had a more rock star sound than her birth name. And she's right. Joan Larkin doesn't really have the same ring to it as Joan Jett. So yeah, she was right. Um, so it was here that she kind of found her way to a club of misfit people that also kind of thought like her. And she had a favorite nightclub that she would go to in California, which was the Rodney Bingenheimer or Bingenheimer. I'm sorry. If you already know what the score is with me, I'm horrible at pronouncing names. So Rodney Bingenheimer, he had a disco club and it was named after him. And he, from my understanding, he was a DJ and he would play a lot of interesting music that wasn't really out there necessarily contemporary and out there to a lot of people in the mainstream like they would play a lot of like British bands like David Bowie they would play a lot of punk bands like the Sex Pistols the Ramones Blondie they played a lot of different things Susie Quattro was also another artist that was playing at this club and Joan Jett took a lot of inspiration from Susie Quattro um she was a bassist and she kind of had this adopted punk look about her you know, she was a woman in the music industry and Susie showed Joan that women could be in rock and roll bands and they could be the stars. And this kind of helped her ground herself and remind her that I am a woman who loves music, rock music in particular, and there's nothing wrong with that. So she also kind of adopted her look as well on Susie Quattro as well. Another influence for Joan was Liza Minnelli, who is the daughter of Judy Garland. Liza Minnelli is most known for that Broadway show or movie, if you will, Cabaret. Um, and that whole thing is kind of very campy. It's like kind of almost like the Broadway movie Chicago with um, uh, Renee Zellweger and uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Is that who is in that film? Catherine Zeta-Jones. But anyway, it's the same kind of concept there. Uh, and Joan Jett was like, wow, this is great. Like it blended kind of like the Hollywood glitz and glamour aspect and the cabaret campy influence, right? And then her music taste, like all three of those aspects came together and it formed Joan Jett and her musical influences and her overall aesthetic um, moving forward throughout her career. Little baby Joan Jett is hanging around this club of uh, misfit people. And one of the people that she happens to find is this man, this music producer named Kim Fowley. And he is just a horrible person, but we're going to get into that in just a minute here. But she ends up meeting him because he's a well-renowned music producer. And she approaches him one night at the club and she's like, oh, hey, I know you. You're Kim Fowley. Like, you know, I love music and I, I play guitar. And, and Kim suggested that... Joan and this drummer named Sandy West get together and jam and see if they have any kind of connection and see if they can maybe start a band. And this all happened in August of 1975. This is going to be the start of The Runaways. Kim also asked Joan if she had any demos of her music and she was like, nope. So this is why Kim asked her again to get together. And Joan stated up in front that she wanted to form an all-girl group, which at this time, was very untoward, like, especially a rock group as well. I mean, of course, you had, you know, like, girl groups like the Ronettes 
you know, all that kind of like poppy stuff. Like, you know, I think if women were to do music, that was to be expected of them, that they would form the kind of bubblegum pop music. But Joan was like, no, we're playing rock music. And that's the discrepancy here in this whole story is I think the whole concept back in the day was like, oh, of course, men can be in these like rock metal punk groups because men are hardcore and they're macho and they can do it and it makes sense. But women doing this? Oh, my God, absolutely not. Because also rock and roll exudes kind of like that whole sex appeal, like drugs, sex and rock and roll music. And at the time, people ever considering a woman being in this kind of group was like so not what was happening and so this was different kim actually wanted to take this on but he had ulterior motives um for why he wanted to form the runaways because let me tell you and let me make sure that i run this in your mind and that you remember this these girls were only 14 15 years old they were not in their 20s or anything like that they were not of legal age they were very very young girls okay and they were being taken advantage of by this creepo kim fowley okay just remember that anyway so Sandy and Joan would end up meeting and they would end up playing Wild Thing, that tune, Wild Thing, you make my heart sing. They ended up playing that together and Kim eventually helped to bring in other girls that would form the Runaways. So they brought on singer-bassist Mickey Steele initially and they started out as just the power trio between the three of them, Mickey, Sandy, and Joan. Um, the Runaways began playing parties and they would began playing at clubs as well around Los Angeles. They soon ended up bringing in lead guitarist Lita Ford, and Joan would end up switching to rhythm guitar instead of lead. Mickey did not last long in the group. She was fired, and she was replaced by bassist Peggy Foster, who left after just one month. So this kind of is the thing. They bring in a lot of people, and it doesn't end up working because there's a certain kind of look that Kim is trying to bring in with the Runaways, and they didn't fit the look or they didn't have the talent, so he kicked them out. But this is where Sherry Curry comes in. And Sherry Curry is the face, I would say, one of the faces anyway, of the Runaways. She is the blonde. And it's interesting because people consider her like the Bridget Bardot of punk rock music because she was very girly. She was very... I mean, she kind of did adopt like a David Bowie kind of look about her with like the kind of shag haircut as well and things like that. But she was amongst everyone, at least according to standards back in the day, and at least according to Kim and his perspective, she was like the most beautiful out of all of them. And so she was going to be front and center. Uh, Sherry Curry was actually recruited by Kim Fowley himself at the club at uh, Rodney Bingenheimer's disco. And again, let me remind you, she's 14, 15 years old, right? She's young here. And Kim approaches her with Joan in tow, and he asks her to audition for the band as a singer. Cherie was doing a little bit of singing here and there, like she was doing a little talent show at school where she lip-synced to David Bowie and things like that. Um, but she, of course, had no actual, like, singing abilities, you know? She was just like, oh, yeah, I can sing. Of course I can sing. Um, so she turned up at this audition. She said that she was going to sing Peggy Sue's Fever. Now, can you imagine her being like, yeah, I'm going to sing Peggy Sue's Fever, which is very, very soft and dainty, right? But then these punk rock girls are like, hell no, we are not playing Peggy Sue's Fever. What are you talking about? Cherie was asked to sit or stand outside um, for a moment while the rest of the band and Kim decide what to do with this situation. And it was actually here in this moment that Joan and the rest of the band members were to think of on the spot some of the lyrics to Cherry Bomb, because Cherry Bomb is actually kind of a play on words for Sherry. You know, she's a wild, untamed, 
you know, force in nature Shuri Curry is. And so that's where they came up with Cherry Bomb, right on the spot. And so Shuri came back in and they asked her to sing the little lyrics that they came up with. And from that point on, it was history moving forward. And then eventually Jackie Fox would join on as bass and that would complete the Runaways. So this is where we are now moving forward with the band. And, and unfortunately, it was actually from the start that Kim Fowley himself was to just be the absolute worst because Kim Fowley, and I'm not afraid to say this, Kim Fowley was a predator, 100%. He was an absolute predator. He preyed upon these young girls, and it was well known, actually, that he would do this. He was a weirdo. He was a, he was a freak, and I'm not afraid to say that. He was a freak. Um, he really played upon the whole fact that these girls, this group of girls, were very young, underage, and he would actually purposefully use the term genuine jailbait when describing the band, which is disgusting, obviously. And not only was he kind of preying on Cherie mostly, he was also emotionally abusive and uh, physically and verbally abusive to the girls. Like he would shout at them, he would degrade them verbally, he would throw things at them. Any excuse that he could to kind of be mean to them and throw things at them and be predatory to, to them. I mean, it's it's disgusting. And let me remind you again, these are very young girls, 14, 15 years old. And uh, yeah, he knows what he's doing and it's disgusting. Um, so the Runaways were signed to Mercury Records in 1976, and their debut album, The Runaways, was released shortly afterward. The band started to tour the U.S. in support of headlining groups such as Cheap Trick, Van Halen, Talking Heads, and Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers, which was really interesting. Their second album, Queens of Noise, was released in 1977, and the band performed a world tour in support of the album, which is massive for young girls back then. The band formed alliances with mostly male punk bands such as the Ramones and the Dead Boys, as well as the British punk scene by hanging out with the likes of The Damned, Generation X, and the Sex Pistols themselves. It was at this time in the summer of 77 that booking agent David Liebert secured dates for the girls in Japan. And this is interesting. I don't know why this happened, but it just happened this way. The girls, when they went over to Japan for this tour, they noticed that they got a wildly different reception in Japan versus how they were received in America. Joan actually described that when the Runaways landed in Japan, that the crazed Japanese fans were greeting them almost as if it was like Beatlemania, like it was a mass hysteria. Interesting. I don't know why that is. I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know what the correlation is between Japan and, and the Runaways. I, I really, I don't know. But it's fascinating. But that just shows the stark contrast between like the Runaways in their home country where they got so, kind of so-so reception and then they went over to Japan of all places and they get massive credit. Um, but while in Japan, the Runaways had a TV special, they made numerous TV appearances and they released an album called Live in Japan, which ended up going gold. So that's great. While in Japan, Jackie Fox left the band before the group was scheduled to appear at the Tokyo Music Festival, unfortunately, and this would kind of somewhat be the unraveling of the band. It was just like tensions were very high within the group. And, and also, not only that, but this is, this is a really hotly contested point, but this is out there, okay? You can make of it what you will, but... Jackie Fox, many years later, I believe it was actually after Kim Fowley passed away, but many years later, Jackie ended up telling a lot of news publications that the reason why her relationship with the band deteriorated was mostly because Kim Fowley apparently raped her while she was uh, semi-unconscious. 
in front of a room full of people and she said that Joan was in the room watching and a couple of other people were there watching and no one did anything about it. That's a very hotly contested point. I mean, say what you will about it, but her story about that is very, very um, sad and disheartening. And Kim Fowley is a disgusting piece of shit regardless on all across the board. So, but that's just one of the reasons why Jackie just couldn't take it anymore and she had to leave. So Joan took over on base until the group returned home to America and they recruited Vicky Blue for a period of time. But then it just, it just couldn't continue because Cherie then left the band after they had a blow up with her and Lita Ford specifically. Cherie just didn't want to do it anymore and Lita was kind of like pressuring her to keep on doing it and Cherie was like, no, no, no. You know, everyone was kind of pressuring everyone to kind of just stay in the band. And this is where Kim Fowley comes in again because he was actually doing this on purpose. He was actually trying to get the girls like fighting with each other in a sick, twisted kind of way. And this actually was enjoyable for him to watch just to see them all like um, cat fighting. It's just disgusting. And of course, you know, Sheree ended up leaving and this was in the fall of 77. And Joan was very upset because this was kind of in a way Joan's band and she really wanted to continue on with this band. She found, you know, a group of girls that that were like her in the music industry and she wanted to keep, you know, continuing to make music. But when Cherie left, it kind of was like the whole thing fell apart. Joan tried to keep the band going by taking over vocals and they ended up releasing their fourth album, Waiting for the Night, but um, it just it just wasn't going to keep happening. Luckily, though, thank God, like Jesus, Kim Fowley and the Runaways would end up uh, separating, if you will, also in 77, mostly due to disagreements over money and management of the band. And of course, he's a fucking asshole. So what are you going to do about it? When the group ended up splitting with Kim, they also parted with their record label. So what could they do at this point? You know, the Runaways reportedly spent much time at this point, enjoying the excesses of the rock and roll lifestyle, i.e. Um, drugs and alcohol and parties and all of that. Like they were just doing all of this to excess. And these were young girls. And it's just like very hard to keep this going. Um, they actually partnered with Thin Lizzy producer John Alcock to record their final album called And Now the Runaways. So now the band was really starting to crumble because Vicky Blue left the group due to illness and she was briefly replaced by Lori McAllister in 78 in November. And also Joan wanted to make a musical change in the band. She wanted to shift towards a punk, glam, David Bowie kind of thing while the others just wanted to continue playing the hard rock metal stuff that they were doing and Joan didn't want to do that, so... The band would play their final concert, their last concert, on New Year's Eve in 1978 at the Cow Palace, and they officially broke up in April of 1979. So that effectively ends the Runaways' careers 100% at this point, and um, it's very unfortunate. So I watched the film, and I think it is called The Runaways. I think that's what it is. It has um, Kristen Stewart playing Joan Jett, and it has Dakota Fanning playing Cherie Curry. And say what you will about Kristen Stewart, but the film genuinely is is really good. Like, Joan actually, you know, was almost an executive kind of producer for the film, and she helped uh, Kristen Stewart try to embody her as much as uh, possible in an accurate way. And the film is so fascinating. I would highly recommend that you guys watch it if you really want to see uh, more in-depth back and forth between the girls and the hardship and the difficulties that was happening amongst 
all of them and their personal lives. And it's just crazy to actually watch. It's, it's really, really good. And in the movie towards the end, this was when the band had broken up. Joan was struggling. She was really into uh, drinking and doing drugs. And she was very, if you will, depressed. And um, she couldn't really comprehend that the Runaways were over because she really enjoyed her group of girlfriends hanging around and making music together. And, you know, again, she felt a kinship to them because this was, you know, girls in an all boy kind of uh, career field, if you will. And they broke through all of that. And and now they were done and dusted. So I feel for Joan. It's a really sad situation there. But that's ended up what it is. And so. Joan now tried to jumpstart a solo career. Slowly but surely, um, she tried to jumpstart her own career. And what's so fascinating was that Joan, she was in England for a brief period of time, actually trying to come up with a solo career. And while she was there, she actually recorded three songs with Sex Pistol members Paul Cook and Steve Jones. And one of these was an early version of the cover that she would end up doing called I Love Rock and Roll. Now, I didn't know that this was a cover. Um, this was done originally by a band named Arrows, and this was their tune. And I think it's really, really good. Um, I might leave a video in the description of this podcast where the lead singer and the songwriter for the Arrows that did this song talks about the conceptualization of the song and Joan Jett's part in the song. It's really, really interesting. This was a song that she really enjoyed, and it had a kind of punky feel already to it, so... England didn't end up uh, working out for her, so later that year she returned to LA where she began fulfilling an obligation of the Runaways to complete a film project that was loosely based on the band's career, which was called We're All Crazy Now. And while she was working on this film, she ended up meeting songwriter and producer Kenny Laguna, and he was hired by her manager Toby Mammis to help Joan with writing some tracks for the film. So Kenny Laguna and Joan Jeb would end up becoming friends. And they're like, you know what? Let's work together. And Joan is like, listen, I want to start a solo career. Can you help me? And Kenny's like, yeah, of course. Of course I'll help you. Uh, so Joan ended up moving all the way back over across the country to Long Beach, New York, where Kenny was based. And Joan and Kenny entered the Who's Ramport Studios to record her solo album. Now, I'm not personally sure why 23 record companies actively rejected Joan's album, I really couldn't see why they would because Joan already made a name for herself with the Runaways and they were like, yeah, no, we're not touching this with a 10 foot pole. No, we're not having it. I don't, that's such a weird stance to take. Like 23 record companies, like nobody wanted to touch Joan's solo work. Maybe they thought that she was done and that it wouldn't work at all. They they didn't want to work with her. I really don't know. But it's it's crazy that that actually happened. Uh, so Joan was like, well, what do we do? I have an album that I want to release. No record company seemingly wants to put out this album and promote it. So what do we do? So this is really interesting. And I like this ingenuity. In response to this, Kenny and Joan decided that, well, what more can we do but release the album under a record label that we come out with and they created their own record label called Blackheart Records which was and still technically is an indie label. Joan still uses Blackheart Records and she kind of has um, little groups that she manages and she allows onto the record label of course. Um, so she still is present with Blackheart Records which I think is amazing. 
Um, but that's what they ended up doing. And what's really, really interesting was they actually used Kenny's daughter's college savings in order to fund the creation for their own label, Blackheart Records. And I think that's just, it just goes to show like how serious they were about this and that they wanted to prove to people that, listen, you might have rejected this album, but we're coming back harder and stronger and fiercer and we're not backing down. So they were serious about this. And I really... I like that. I like that kind of perseverance, you know. So Joan's self-titled solo debut album was released officially on May 17th, 1980. But this was to be a short-lived solo career because Joan really saw that her best music really came from and was cultivated by a band of sorts. Um, But she didn't want to create another all-female group because she thought that would be sacrilegious because... She had already had The Runaways, and so she was looking to create a band, but this time she wanted an all-male backing band with her at the front. So this is where she would try to form Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. She ended up placing an ad in the LA Weekly stating that she was, quote, looking for three good men. This sounds like another kind of ad if you get me, Um, but uh, John Doe of the band called X sat in on bass for the auditions held at a recording studio in Los Angeles. John Doe mentioned a local bass player as well named Gary Ryan, who was at this audition. He had recently been crashing on John's couch. And so the two of them kind of went together just to see like which one of them could land the bass gig, if you will. Gary was part of the Los Angeles punk scene, and so he was perfect for the gig. And also, he had been a fan of the Runaways for many years in the 70s, so it seems like Gary would be the natural selection there for that. And so Joan recognized him actually at the audition and say, hey, like you were at our shows or oh, you're a Runaways fan. That's cool. So Gary Ryan was the one that was picked and he was in as bassist. They then brought on Eric Amble, who was the guitarist, and Danny O'Brien, the drummer, came in as well. And so the Blackhearts officially was born. This version of the Blackhearts played several gigs at the Golden Bear, which is a club in Huntington Beach, California. And they also played at the famous Whiskey Agogo in Hollywood before they actually went on a full European tour, which consisted of a huge, massive tour of the Netherlands in a few shows in England, including the Marquee in London, which is a huge venue. Considering this is a band that just came together, like, can you imagine the stress of touring not only, like, in America, but also a huge European tour? I mean, you're gonna really get to know these people pretty quickly from doing that. That's that's a lot that they took on there. So Kenny Laguna fired Danny at the end of the tour. As you do, right? Of course, that happens. Like, something probably happened there. Kenny fired Danny. Uh, And then Lee Crystal became the new drummer for the group. And the band in this version then toured throughout the U.S. again, slowly acquiring a fan base of their own. However, they were struggling to remain financially stable because this was a new franchise. And Kenny had used a lot of the money uh, to fund the indie record label and to promote the album, to promote Jones' first album as well. And because no other major record company with the proper funding wanted to help them, they were struggling financially for a long time. It, it After the fact of them trying to even form 
some kind of fan base and trying to make money, Kenny would actually, in the back of his car, bring in a copies of Joan's first album, and he would try to sell the albums, the CDs, out of his car to people after gigs that the Blackhearts would play just to make some more money, because that's how they were able to sell the albums, which is crazy. You know, Joan and Kenny used their personal savings to, you know, keep making copies of the album as well and to fund the touring that they were doing. The absolute madness that that is, but also the perseverance, I have to give it to them. They're really trying their best, you know. Thankfully, though, someone actually came in to help them. Kenny had an old friend who was also the founder of Casablanca Records. His name was Neil Bogart and... Together, they made a joint venture with Kenny, and they ended up signing Joan to his new label called Boardwalk Records, and they would end up re-releasing Joan's solo album, and they changed the name from Joan Jett to Bad Reputation. There you go! It all kind of came together, and now they finally had the help of a, of a more major company that could help them financially. So there was a concert that happened in the springtime of 1981 at the Palladium in New York that proved to be a massive turning point for the band in a good way. This gig was described by music journalists as a career-defining performance by Joan, and it helped solidify a strong New York following for the band, which was really lucky for them. And this was, you know, a year of them trying to tour and then also going to the studio and trying to record an album. The Blackhearts would then finally uh, release their kind of debut album, if you will, called I Love Rock and Roll for this new label. And the single of the same name, it went number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was there for seven weeks in a row. I mean, this is a wickedly popular song. Of course it is. I mean, it's still very well known and popular today. Yeah, the lead singer for Arrow who's the original uh, songwriter for the song, he, he really likes it. He actually is a pretty nice guy. He seems nice. He actually enjoys the fact that so many people actually have covered the song. But listen, can we all be honest here for a minute? Joan's version, I think, is the definitive version. Can we just be honest and say nothing wrong with what the Arrows did? Like, the Arrows was very much so, like, a bad finger, animals, kinks, kind of uh, light rock version at the time for the 70s, and then Joan made it really, like, punchy. Uh, the band subsequently released an album called Album <laughs> uh, in 1983, and they released another album in 84 called Glorious Results of a Misspent Youth. I mean, oh my god. What a name for an album. Glorious Results of a Misspent Youth. Yeah, I like that. That's very uh, artistic. I like that. And then a string of top 40 hits followed after that point, as well as sellout tours with The Police, Queen, and Aerosmith, among other rock artists. Joan was among the first English-speaking rock act to appear in Panama and the Dominican Republic, which is interesting. So the band's follow-up releases to all these albums was called Up Your Alley, and it went multi-platinum. The album contains the single I Hate Myself for Loving You, which is also probably one of her biggest tunes as well, which peaked at number 8 on the Billboard Hot 100. And this was followed by an album called The Hit List, which consisted of cover songs mostly, so it didn't do like a whole lot, but it did something. During this time, Joan co-wrote the song House of Fire for Alice Cooper's album called Trash in 89, which is like, what? Mind blown. She's writing music for Alice Cooper? Wow. Crazy. 
I know I'm kind of like moving fast through time here throughout the 80s and 90s and now, but it's kind of all like the same. There isn't really a whole lot that I really wanted to dive deep into with these albums here necessarily, um, but their 1991 album called Notorious featured the replacements Paul Westerberg and former Billy Idol bass player. This was the last album that the Blackhearts would do with Sony and Joan would end up switching to Warner Brothers from here on out with her music. So this was kind of where as well Joan started to branch out a little bit and like take bands under her wing on her record label and try to promote them and put them out. So, you know, as time goes on, especially now that we're moving through the 90s here, she's obviously amassed a huge cult-like following and she's made a name for herself, not only with The Runaways, but her own music with the Blackhearts. And the press, you know, started to finally acknowledge her for her place in music history, and they dubbed her as the godmother of punk and the original Riot Girl. Now, I know a little bit about the Riot Girl uh, counterculture, but I don't know a whole lot about it, so I did a little bit of research, and pretty much what it is, Riot Girl was and still is an underground feminist punk movement that began during the early 1990s, mostly, again, because of Joan Jett's massive influence. And like I said, it's a kind of counterculture movement, um, and it combined feminism, punk music, and politics, which are all things that Joan Jett is and has continued to be. So just some examples of bands that fall under the Riot Girl category include, but aren't limited to, Bikini Kill, which I think is one of the biggest ones because Bikini Kill was actually in with um, Nirvana and Courtney Love as well, because Courtney Love, she had her own band too. Um, so they were kind of friends. Slater Kenny was also included in this, and I had heard of Slater Kenny. I was like, wait a minute, I had totally heard of Slater Kenny, the name Slater Kenny before. I had no idea that they were part of the Riot Girl movement, but yeah, there you go. Other bands include Bratmobile, La Tigre, Babes in Toyland, and a bunch of others. And basically, again, this is like a female-fronted band that had a, had the movement where they would express like a very punk attitude in their songs. They would talk about a female empowerment, feminism, and they would also dog on politics. Of course, like Joan Jett does, which is why she's called the original Riot Girl. So, so she's just amassing so many accolades throughout her time. And she finally got the recognition that she always deserved. I think we need to stop sleeping on Joan Jett and we need to give her the proper recognition. I, I mean, a lot of us have, but I think some people, like myself initially, didn't really give her the time of day. Like, yeah, 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 listen, we know that Joan Jett's like a punk person, whatever. But we really didn't consider, or at least I didn't consider, like how actually integral her role in the punk movement was. I, I really just had no idea, to be honest. So in 1994, the Blackhearts released their very well-received album called Pure and Simple, which featured tracks written with such acts like Babes in Toyland, Cat Belland, L7's Danita Sparks, and Bikini Kill's Kathleen Hanna. So since 1994, they've released four more albums. They did one in 2004 called Naked, one in 2006 called Sinner, 2013 saw the album Unvarnished, and then 2022, actually, she is uh, shown to have an album in the works called Change Up, but we don't know when that's coming, if that's coming at all. It could change. There is at least an album in the works, so I'll be looking out for that, and I'll probably do a review on it, maybe on my blog. Um, 
that essentially, in a nutshell, is the story of Joan Jett. I mean, my mind is significantly blown. I don't know about your minds, but my mind has been blown about this whole situation. I think it's just really fascinating. You know, like I did an episode on Chrissy Hine of The Pretenders. She as well, to me, is another example of a strong uh, female presence in the music industry that at the time was really dominated by men, especially in the rock genre and in the punk genre as well. And I consider Chrissy Hind and Joan Jett to be kind of one and the same, at least in terms of their attitude and their outlook to women's roles in rock music and how they want to um, show to the world that, you know, women can be strong leaders in rock and metal music. I mean, obviously, it's gotten a lot more acceptable that women could be like uh, metal singers or hard rock singers or something like that, where typically it was seen as like a male only club. Like this is a boys only club. Sorry, no girls allowed in here. That kind of whole uh, thing there. But it's just it's, it's fascinating to me. You know, Joan Jett really is an interesting integral figure in in punk music but also um in the music industry as a whole and i think um i think if anything we have to give it to her she really really did a lot in her life i mean hello she created her own record label from literally nothing from the ground up when 23 record companies didn't even want anything to do with her she never really strayed away from her goals and her dreams she just kept on doing it and she kept giving the middle finger to everyone in the process yeah good on her so thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I am going to leave it here. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.